Young Entertainment. Young Entertainment Professionals. Young Entertainment Professionals. Hey guys, we are rolling into another episode of the Yep Podcast. Today we have one of my longtime friends in Nashville and artist manager at Triple Eight Management. He was also previously on our Young Hustlers of the Music Biz panel back in early 2020. Um, his name is Ben Hutto, and welcome to the Young Entertainment Professionals podcast. How are you? Woo-hoo. What's up, y'all? Um, I'm good. You know, things are looking up. Spring, spring has arrived. Uh, vaccines are being taken. Festivals are being announced. Yes. You know, I think uh, everyone's uh, everyone's a little happier than they than they were even a month ago. So, you know, it's it's looking up and things are looking. I, I guess the lights at the end of the tunnel. I think we're we're starting to see that light. I think so too. I have definitely since a huge change in my attitude, in my workflow, in my motivation. Um, so very excited to see what's to come um, as we roll out of this pandemic. Crossing fingers, knock on wood. Uh, yeah. So you've been in artist management for a while, started out managing the indie band, indie rock. Is, are they is considered indie rock or pop or just indie? Um, I mean, we, we, the commercial success has been on alternative rock, okay. uh, radio, and in that platform. So I, yeah, I'd throw it in the indie rock, indie rock side. So Ben has been the longtime uh, artist manager for the alternative rock band, uh, Judah and the Lion. Yeah. And yeah. It's been, yeah, literally since their very beginning at Belmont. Yeah, it was, it, it's been a fun ride. You know, it's, um, I started working with those guys back in 2013, actually no, 2012, uh, when we were at Belmont together and, um, all the guys in the band were also students and, a few of them were musicians, you know, music students for guitar and whatnot. And Judah was a music business student and played baseball at, uh, at the school. And, um, you know, for those of y'all that aren't familiar with, you know, Belmont and, and, and potentially what, what all they do from a Curb College standpoint, they have this thing every year called the Showcase Series. And um, that that series is broken up into uh, four different genres, uh, which is Christian, uh, rock, urban pop, and country. Uh, and then they have a best of the best showcase at the end of the year. And um, the June and the Lion guys, they were recording their first EP. I don't even think they had their name yet. Um, and I was just, I had become friends with Nate, who's the banjo player. And he invited me to just come hang at the studio. I don't, I did not have an agenda going there. I don't think Nate had an agenda with me coming there. I think it was just, Hey, come hang out. You know, I think we're recording and making some cool stuff. You know, we'd love for you to hear it. And, um, I, you know, I I still remember it was, it was a studio off of music row. And I remember walking in, that was the first night I'd met Judah and and Brian and the, you know, the rest of the folks. And instantly I was like, wow, this is different than anything else I've heard on campus. You know, like, Cause you know how Belmont was, yeah. like, there were so many bands, there were so many new, new projects and, you know, everyone was trying to flex, but not, not a lot of people were able to back it up. And I personally didn't really know what I wanted to do. You know, like when I came into Belmont, I, I transferred in 
originally I was going to be a nurse back in Florida. Right. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. So like I, cause my mom was a nurse and, and, you know, I, I, she, you know, her and my dad were able to provide great for my family. And, you know, in my head, you know, just being 18, 19 at the time, I was like, Oh, that's a, that'll be a good job. I'll have good job security, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, quickly realized that wasn't for me, you know, music's been my passion. So I moved up to, to Nashville and, I came into Belmont as a audio engineering major and a classical voice minor because, you know, why I, I definitely why wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, I came in and, 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 you know, got accepted and came up and, and quickly realized after taking audio classes that um, I knew it sounded great. I knew it sounded like crap, but getting it from, crap to great. I'd rather just pay somebody to do that, you know? So, uh, and I realized I'm just, you know, I'm a little, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to wear a ponytail. Right. And I'm not going to wear combat boots, which I feel like most front of house guys (laughs) wear. Uh, (laughs) And I I just felt like I was good. I I had, I had, you know, I I pride myself on my kind of interpersonal like communication skills. I think I can, hold conversation well and, and, and make good friends. So, you know, I figured the business side, I'd, I'd be able to, to make it a little further. Um, and I think when I, when I first met Nate, Jude and Brian, it kind of clicked in my head where I was like, Oh man, I want to be involved with these guys. I don't know how, but I want to be involved. And it just kind of progressed from there. Yeah, you definitely answered my question of whether or not artist management was already in your head. And the fact that like the community of Belmont led you to what you wanted to do rather than the other way around, I think is really cool. Um, yeah. And, and you know, I, I did have some external influences that kind of pushed me towards management. I've got an uncle of mine, um, Uncle Don, uh, when I was in high school and in, in, in at Belmont. Uh, he's currently at red light management. So he's also an artist manager, but for my whole life, he's been working in music. And so I've kind of been around that. And every time I would go visit my cousins up in Birmingham, uh, you know, as I was growing up, we'd always go to concerts and, you know, uncle Don would always have the new CDs and the new music and stuff. Cause at the time he owned a couple uh, record stores. Right. And, and, uh, was very successful in that. He helped launch Record Store Day, uh, which is real popular now. He's like the co-founder. No way. Yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, I grew up with this audiophile, uh, you know, hip uncle of mine that loved music, and he knew that I loved music, so he was always giving me CDs and stuff and kind of stoking that fire. And then in high school, he was working in management, um, and at the time it was, it was, he had, he had some pretty big clients, you know, he had, um, he had Soundgarden, uh, when they got back together and did their big re-release, he was managing them, uh, Chris Cornell, he managed Lenny Kravitz for seven years, you know, so he had some, you know, and a handful of others. And, uh, so he had, he had a, a good amount of, uh, you know, influence on me because I mean, you know, I'm a teenager and I'm like, yo, like, Hey, this is cool, you know, like uncles yeah. getting to travel all around. So, but I never really like thought that was going to be an, 
opportunity for me. Right. And, right. um, I, I just more so was like, this is really cool, you know, and I'll, you know, I get to, to mooch concert tickets off of uncle Don when I'm 15, you know, and get to go to these shows. But I never thought like, Oh, I could do that. And, uh, once I got up here, um, shortly after my uncle and his wife, man, Lane ended up relocating from Birmingham up to Nashville as well. And, um, you know, I just, I mean, we've got a great relationship, you know, luckily I've got great relationships with my family and extended family and I got, you know, super close. And, you know, once that opportunity came, I just started throwing out ideas to Judah and the guys, you know, and I didn't really know it was going to blossom into anything. And I guess the thing where it really solidified or, or came to a head was for one of the showcases. So, you know, the guys recorded an EP and, they ended up submitting it to, uh, you know, the showcase panel or whoever does the judging for that. And at the time it was a Christian EP, right? Like Judah was wanting to do worship cause that's what he grew up doing. Um, and it, you know, the, their first EP was called first fruits and, um, I came on and we ended up submitting it to the Christian showcase, got accepted you know, ended up performing that. And for those that aren't aware, you know, Christian Showcase, it has to be a Belmont band, you know, all the, you know, everyone involved has to be a Belmont student. So the, all the band members on stage are Belmont students. Every band needs a quote unquote manager, right? So I kind of fell into that role and that Christian Showcase in 2012 was the first uh, show that I managed for them. And most of the time, like when you look at over the course of, I mean, even the four or three years that I was at Belmont, you know, that manager role for most of those showcase bands, it's kind of a, you know, it's, it's, it's real, but it's not like, you know, it's, it's interesting, but um, the, it, it, it turned into a real thing for us because after that showcase, after the performance, they, they usually take all the artists and uh, their manager up to a panel or up to a room that's, you know, one of the suites next to the arena. And they have industry professionals that they've brought in, which are usually consist of like, you know, an agent or two from in town, like a, a label head or two or A&R person in town yeah. and like a publishing person, right? And we ended up, going up to that room and usually they're giving out a ton of critiques and telling you how you could do better and saying, you know, Hey, great job. You know, what I would do next time is this, you know, for us, I ended up leaving with some business cards wanting lunch the next week, you know, and I was like, Oh, you know, this is interesting. So, you know, it ended up, I, I remember calling my uncle being like, Hey, this, you know, I've got this, these couple labels and these, agents wanting to get lunch next week can i come over to the house and us talk because yeah. i don't <laughs> really rep. know yeah i need to figure out what i'm going to say you know um but you know it ended up progressing and and you know nothing came from those meetings because the guys were have been very uh, intentional about staying independent even at the very very um front end of their career um and you know that that rang true then that was kind of the first uh, dip into that um but regardless it showed and it kind of stoked a fire within the band and myself 
um, that like, hey, this could be something. This could be something real. This could be something um, that actually could turn into a job. You know, and I had some mentors of mine and, um, you know, I had, uh, you know, some teachers and my uncle and various folks saying like, hey, this, you know, this could be something cool. And, you know, hey, you're doing a good job for being a student same time like you yeah. not you know it's just good motivation right and so that thought you know that last year of school um we ended up recording another record we did this like you know we did a kickstarter crowdfunding thing um recorded a, a, their first ep which was called sweet tennessee um and the guys intentionally decided like hey you know we want we don't want to pigeonhole ourselves in the Christian lane and be a Christian band, um, which you can have great success in the CCM world. Yeah. You can, but you gotta, I feel like you gotta really want that specifically. You do, you do. And it just pigeonholes you in the fact that, you know, unless you're on this level of, you know, passion and Hillsong and these like crazy large, like big CCMX, you know, you're kind of limited to playing, you know, mega churches and, you know, smaller venues. Like you're never really yeah. doing the big amphitheaters and, and the larger venues are kind of out of the question. So, you know, the guys decided, Hey, we're not going to be a Christian band. We're going to be a band just of good dudes, you know, like, we're going to just going to, we're going to build our brand around pushing positivity and hope to our fans. Um, and be, with, with the goal of reaching more people, uh, because, you know, in, in society, there's a lot of folks that, you know, if they even see a stamp of like, Hey, this is a Christian artist, they write them off. So, um, the guys decided, Hey, we're going to do this. You know, let's, let's aim towards, uh, just trying to reach as many people as we can. And um, that the first kind of intentional decision for that happened around the Sweet Tennessee EP, which we did our last uh, year at Belmont. And, you know, that was, you know, we were still all students. I remember it came out and it went, you know, number one on the singer songwriter chart, which was like, holy crap. Like, <laughs> yeah. Whoa, you know, this is crazy. And, um, you know, we ended up doing a, we released the, we released the EP right at the best of the best showcase, you know, and, um, and yeah, it was just fun. There was like, it, it was just, there was some buzz and there was, you know, some cool stuff. And, um, we ended up, you know, the band decided in 2013, they're like, Hey, you know what, we're going to, we're, there's a, there's a window of opportunity. We don't want to miss it, you know? We, we want to try to do this for real. We want to try to, you know, take our shot. And, um, you know, a few of the guys graduated, a few of the guys dropped out just to make sure that, hey, all, all effort, all of our, um, you know, all of our focus is going to go towards trying to make this succeed, including that mentality for myself. And, you know, into my last six months of Belmont, uh, Paul Steele, who's my, uh, boss currently um, and, you know, a dear friend of mine and mentor of mine, um, you know, Paul 
messaged me or emailed me and was just like, Hey, like I noticed these guys, like I've, you know, I've been following y'all for, you know, about a year and, and, you know, you're going, you're doing good work and I'd love to get coffee with you. So like, you know, we started getting coffee and this was, you know, I was still a senior in, in at Belmont and started getting coffee and the coffees turned into lunches and longer conversations. And, and that turned into phone calls where I was bouncing ideas off of him for, for various things. And, um, you know, coming, uh, you know, a couple of weeks before I graduated, he gave me a call and said, Hey, I'd love to hire you. Um, you know, would love to bring you in, you know, I, you know, he owned a, a independent, just kind of boutique management company that wasn't huge, but, um, it was, it was, you know, good people and it was real and it was honest. And I could tell, you know, Paul, Paul wasn't the only person that had reached out um, in terms of like, hey, we'd love to, you know, we have, we notice you, you know, like we see what you're doing, you know, we'd love to maybe see if you could come work for us. And Paul just shined through and, you know, I could tell that he was a good person and he cared about me um, because, you know, in this industry, a lot of people just care about the talent and, Right. Uh, you know, one of the things transparently that I was afraid of was like, hey, what if I sign on to some place and then they, you know, they end up pushing me out of the picture, you know, because I'm some young, fresh out of college kid that doesn't know crap, you yeah. know, but Paul wasn't that. And, and he hired me right out of college. And, you know, I talked to the band, the Judah and the guys, they met Paul and they were, you know, cause I wanted to make sure they were, you know, cool with me partnering up with him and they, they liked him and gave their sign of approval. So I, you know, I signed on and started working for Paul and, you know, that, that allowed a little bit of cushion and grace for me to fall on my face multiple times and learn, you know, learn, you know, I didn't know. Yeah. I mean, college teaches you things, but you don't know crap. Like really all of my, I would say personally, my internships and maybe one class that I took, I actually take that back. There was maybe two or three classes within my entire college career that prepared me for what I do now. Yeah. I agree with that. You know, and like, you know, when you look back on it, all the classes that I feel like we stressed out so much about, you know, like for me, it was like accounting and finance and all these like bullshit classes that like, I I don't utilize hardly any of that stuff. Like, I know how to read an Excel spreadsheet and build, you know, right. you know, we've got business managers that build out our tour budgets and all of our different budgets for projects and stuff. And, you know, that, that's the extent of yeah. the, the knowledge that I utilize from those classes. And, you know, the, yeah. So most of my stuff that I learned came through my internships at CAA, you know, like I interned at CAA and that taught me how right. you know, the basics of how, how touring works and how does a show get booked, you know? And I did that when I was still in college and I interned for a management company and that showed me, you know, what the ins and outs of, of how to service the client well and how to help plan record releases and and what all goes into actually managing a full business, because that's what management is. Like people think of management, you know, just to just, you know, as this job, this cool job that, you know, you just are constantly on the road and going to shows and stuff. But, you know, when you just look at the brass tacks of it, you're, you're essentially running a company, 
or multiple companies because yeah. a lot of clients have multiple registered companies under their one name, you know, a touring entity, you know, uh, and, you know, various LLCs for different projects. And, you know, it's the manager's job to uh, essentially quality control and make sure everything's working as it should and checking in on team members and, you know, keeping folks accountable, but also keeping that 10 mile high view on what's coming and, and the plan, but also being in the weeds. So, you know, I was able to, to intern at these companies and kind of get, you know, a base layer of knowledge on how things worked. Obviously I didn't know a lot, but I knew enough to know that, okay, I don't want to be an agent, you know, I don't, respect and, and love it. I mean, some of my best friends are agents and, and, you know, they've got great careers and great families and do good work, but that, I just knew that wasn't for me. Um, Can you, you know. talk a little bit as to why? Because I think some people don't know much of the difference between agents and managers. Especially yeah. I mean, you know, the base, the, the base uh, definition for those that, that, you know, find it difficult to maybe to be the, the difference between it, mm-hmm. you know, agents, you know, there, there are, there are multiple people in a, in an artist uh, camp, you know, when you look at a professional artist that are uh, commission based, right. So they're um, meaning the money that is paid to them is a percentage of uh, various things, you know, so for management, that's usually a gross thing. So gross meaning all, right. So all revenue that comes into, uh, an artist's, um, you know, uh, camp, you know, for management, uh, it's a commission, you know, the average across the industry is around 15%. Um, so that means just off the top, that's the gross, uh, amount that's paid to management. So on the agent side, agents get 10% of any uh, show or opportunity that they bring in. So agents are strictly uh, dedicated to booking shows and creating opportunities in front of fans. And that can come in various forms of actual shows and festivals to private events like, you know, X company down in Orlando is doing this, you know, conference for their employees, you know, those type of things okay. to brand brand partnerships, you know, bringing on, you know, Samsung for a tour or, or whatever it may be. Um, any of those opportunities that agents bring in, uh, they all get like 10% of that. And then the other, you know, kind of normal commission based, Team members will also be your business manager, which runs all the finances for your band. Mm-hmm. Um, the majority of your business managers also pay all your clients' personal bills, you know, so they're in charge of paying the house mortgage and they're in charge of paying the car payments. But also on top of that, they do all the payroll for the band and all their musicians and all the crew members and uh, help build out the budgets and all that kind of stuff. And then, the other team member that's usually commission based is the attorney as well. Um, because, you know, especially when you're starting out, you know, you can't really afford a, uh, paying that 300 to $500 an hour fee uh, that a lot of these larger entertainment attorneys come with. 
Um, but I guess to circle back to your main question, um, the reason that I, I did not personally want to be an agent is because I wanted to be more involved in um, the actual art creation aspect okay. of the artist, right? Because generally speaking, the agent is brought on, you know, when shows, when we're ready to do shows, you know? So typically speaking around like an album cycle, let's say a band records a new record, you know, the agent's not involved in the creation of that record and the planning of it and the dreaming aspect, you know, the agent's not involved in the uh, dreaming aspect of this live show and putting together the production and the lights and uh, helping sequence the, the, you know, the run of show and the set list and, and helping build out a crew of people that, that you know are going to love your clients well and are going to work well for your clients. You know, agents are brought on board to help book those shows. And, and while, the, while the artists have good relationships with those agents, they just work more closely with the managers because it's an all-encompassing business uh, relationship. So I wanted to be more on a personal relationship with my clients rather than uh, more of a, not passive, but... Um, you know, not as, not as close because generally speaking, the agents are talking to the managers, right? The managers are talking to the clients. So I wanted to have that personal relationship with a client. Um, and you know, maybe that all goes back. I did it. I did the whole Enneagram thing last year. Yeah. Well, I'm a, a three wing two. Uh, I don't know if, if you believe in that or not. I don't even know if I believe in it. But <laughs> It makes sense. I mean, when I'm written. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Publicity Nation PR, an industry leader in music and entertainment to help entertainers. In addition to media outreach, Publicity Nation specializes in artist development, branding, and commercial projects for artists, entertainers, entrepreneurs, and social influencers. Their drive, dedication, and exemplary work ethic leads to their clients' success. Be seen and be heard by visiting publicitynation.com today. I feel like, I feel like I've definitely, I cha- I've evolved as a creative, as a person in general. Um, when I first took it, I was a one. Yeah which makes a lot of sense with my, my workflow, how mm-hmm. I go about things. But a lot of people have confused me for a three mm-hmm. because I'm just my work ethic. And then others have confused me for a seven mm-hmm. because of the creative aspect. So, yeah, I mean, but I, I was also thinking too, like, this is maybe a weird way to put it, but like you going after like nursing school, like mm-hmm. in that role, you'd still be taking care of people being involved in their like, medical journey whereas like with artists you're involved in their their changes which i want to get into in just a second but like their day-to-day literally their day-to-day creative process and how they're doing and you know that sort of thing um but i want to hear because for those who have listened to july for a long time they started at this like folk ccm type sound which transferred into folk rock, indie, um, and they've gone through a lot of branding changes as now a trio, and then of course, um, going through this pandemic. So I wanna kind of hear from a personal standpoint, what has been the most important part about 
keeping them all aligned with what they set out to do from the beginning throughout all of these adaptations and growth? Yeah, I mean, look, we're here to, to really foster and, and cultivate and help execute their dreams, right? Yeah. Like, yes, we can give our creative input and we can give our thoughts and advice and opinions on things, but at the end of the day, they are the client. And, what the, you know, we are on their team to help them execute what they want to do. Um, and, yeah, we've had, we, we have had a lot of, of growth and change over the past, you know, seven years that the band has been a band, um, which is natural. You know, when you look at, look at any band, like any band that does not evolve, typically speaking, they, you know, they're, they have a short-lived career. Um, you know, and, and one of the, the key turning points for the Judah guys was, was once, you know, like, like I said, and, you know, at the end of, of that Belmont days and period when, when the guys decided, Hey, we're going to do this for real. Um, they decided, Hey, let's, let's do our first actual full length record. Great. Okay. Well, that EP before that first full length was very folky. You know, it was, this was during the Mumford age. This was during, this is when Mumford was huge. Right. And, yeah. And, and the Judah guy, you know, it was very acoustic driven. We had an upright bass on stage. We had a cello on stage, you know, uh, we had suspenders being worn and and and, yeah. and stuff. flag. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it was, you know, it, and it looked great and, and yeah. it was cool for the time, but um, we ended up, uh, the first record that the guys did was called Kids These Days, the first full length. And um, we ended up taking a risk and, and got lucky, honestly. And um, the guy that ended up, I guess let's rewind a little bit, for Sweet Tennessee, which is that first EP that we did, or that, you know, the, yep. the, the first non-Christian EP that we did in college. Um, through, you know, luck and happenstance, I guess, I had, I had had a, a, a real successful and popular mixing engineer in town. A guy named Vance Powell was lined up to mix the record. And Vance is amazing. You know, he's got, a, you know, he's done all the Jack Black stuff. Um, I'm sorry, Jack White. <laughs> big difference what was it what, school of rock <laughs> yeah not school of rock uh jack white um he's been a, a big part of jack white's career amazing mixing engineer and uh we had him lined up to mix the sweets and cep and eventually uh i guess jack white ended up having a uh, project come up so he had to back out because obviously it's like hey jack's my main client these are some right. college kids like, Hey guys, we can't do that. You know, I, I unfortunately have to back out. So with him backing out and through a couple mentors of mine, I was able to get a guy named Dave Cobb on board. Sweet. Produce or not produce, but to mix the record. Right. So he mixed this first EP and this is before Dave really had a lot of his commercial success. This is before, Jason Isbell's The Southern, you know, Southerner or Southern, I forget the actual name of the title, came out. Um, so Dave came on board and, and mixed the record over the course of a couple of days. And, right. and the guys got to meet him and, and got a good relationship with him. So when they wanted to do the new record, it kind of felt like the obvious decision to ask Dave if he wanted to try to, or to hop on board to produce it. So Dave said yes, came on board, and Dave really helped pull the guys out of their comfort zone 
and try new things. So, you know, if you, if you listen to that Sweet Tennessee EP and then you listen to kids these days, you'll sonically speaking, you'll hear a, a drastic difference. And, and yes, there are still banjo, there's still mandolin, there's still right. acoustic, but there's also electric guitars. Um, you, you know, they got rid of all of the upright instruments like the upright bass and the cello. Those are, you know, were no longer, uh, you know, sonic elements of the band. Instead, they brought in the, like a Moog synthesizer bass, you know, and they brought in like kind of synthy type stuff. And that really helped spark, creatively speaking, a new lane for the guys to start exploring in. And that kind of created the, um, that path towards the indie rock side, right? And um, that has been evolving over the years. You know, the first two records that were done uh, which was Kids These Days and Full Cop and Roll. Those were both produced by Dave. Um, and for those that aren't aware of Dave, Dave's been the producer and um, one of the main brains behind Chris Stapleton and all of his success and Jason Isbell and uh, Brandy Carlisle. So like he's a, you know, now, right now, he's, you know, he's as big as he's ever been, you know, but back when we were working with him, he was, he was on his come up too, you know, yeah. and, so we got really lucky having him on board. Um, but the cool thing is that, um, you know, these guys, the Judah guys are very loyal with um, their friends and, and the folks that they work with. And one of the guys that we all went to school with and were dear friends with and still are is a guy named Drew Long. And Drew, uh, for that first record that we did with Dave, we brought Drew in to be just a helper. Like, you know, he, he was an audio student at Belmont. Wasn't really, you know, it wasn't doing it professionally yet, but uh, Dave was like, yeah, bring him in. So Drew came in yeah. and he was like, he just, he was on a laptop, like editing, you know, editing Pro Tool sessions and stuff and like taking out the, you know, the sound blips and like, you know, taking out the pops and the, the breaths yeah. and whatnot. And, that eventually evolved to Drew being Dave's assistant and, and, and eventually engineering with Dave. And then, um, you know, this record, uh, and then, and then Drew ended up when fall cop and roll came out, which was the second, uh, full, full length release for Judah. Um, we ended up doing some radio edits and that was the first time that we went to, um, radio, uh, you know, ever, Never did we'd never done a radio campaign before, and Drew actually did those radio edits, and those radio edits are the ones that you know kind of launched us into a new um, into a new league with radio success. So you know, take it all back. We did um, you know if you listen, you can go on Spotify and and you can click on Take It All Back, and then if you click on Take It All Back 2.0, the 2.0 version is the radio release, and that's the one that ended up going number one, it all turned to radio and was there for three weeks and it's now platinum. And, you know, it kind of, that was the first kind of skyrocket towards, you know, mainstream success and getting a lot of more fans. Um, and the guys knew like, Hey, Drew gets us and gets our sound. So, right. you know, Drew helped co-produce this last record and, and, you know, Drew's very involved still with the creation process. So the guys know and understand that, 
yes, the brand may evolve in terms of what we're recording and doing, but the people that are helping do it are not, you know, and, and those people are still uh, on board and they're still understand and get the vision of the band and of the three principal guys being Judah, Nate, Brian, they understand what they want to accomplish and, and, you know, understand and, and help cultivate the best way to accomplish that, you know, whether it be through the studio, you know, our, who you, I mean, you know, um, you know, the band's tour manager, Adam Davis, your friend with, you know, we, we used to hang with all the time. I mean, he's still one of my best friends. Um, you know, Adam's been their tour manager since the first tour that him and I hopped in a 15 passenger van and drove across the country, you know, doing house shows to 15 people, you know, this past tour headline tour that we did, which had multiple tour buses and semi trucks, Adam was still the tour manager. So like Adam's grown with it. And that's just also, showing like the loyalty that the guys have and knowing that like, Hey, you know, we've got people that truly care about us as human beings, but also have bought into the vision that we have. And they realize that having those people on board help to progress their sound and to progress the business. And to help build because they know what it was like from the very beginning Yeah. Um, to give people a backstory. <laughs> At Belmont, you transferred with like, I feel like you, you transferred in with like six other people in our friend group. So it was like a transfer group that next semester and Adam was within that friend group. Yeah. I mean, Adam was the first person I met on campus and um, we ended up becoming fast friends real quick and, and uh, ended up becoming roommates on campus. And I remember, I remember, telling him again, like every other Belmont music business student telling him like one day coming home to our apartment out in Bellevue. I'm like, dude, I think I'm managing a band, you know? <laughs> like, okay, cool. You know? And it ended up continuing. And I remember one day just being, you know, being like, Hey, um, can I pay you 50 bucks to come run sound at uh, 12th and Porter for a show for the guys? And that was his first gig with the band. And then... Because he was an audio. Yeah, he, he was an audio engineering major and, and did live sound. And for the longest time, he was the band's tour manager and front of house engineer. Wow. And then once it got to a certain um, level of venue and staffing, we had to... We transitioned him to strictly tour management um, and then brought on a front of house guy and a production and our production manager and, and a monitor engineer. So we have, you know, Adam's essentially the, uh, you know, my right hand man when the band's on tour, but he's also, you know, in, in terms of hierarchy on a tour, you know, Adam's the boss when, when they're on the road, you know, and everyone an answers to him. And, you know, when you have, when you've got, you know, eight to 12 crew members, you know, it's Adam's job to uh, keep the keep them in check, and and obviously there's other hierarchy and there any any type of manager on the road, meaning like tour manager, production manager. Um, you know that that term, you know, carries a little bit of hierarchy with it and carries responsibility with it. But you know, at the end of the day, Adam's the ones that 
you know, is emailing myself and Paul and our team every night with a recap of the shows and, 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 and all the financials from the shows. And Adam's the one that is, um, you know, he's making sure that the money's making it to the business manager to be deposited and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, he's got quite a bit of responsibility, but the guys, you know, as with myself, Adam and myself have learned with, you know, we've grown in our own professional lives with the band and we've learned and we've adapted and, you know, and they've thankfully the Judah guys have had grace throughout the years to allow that to happen, you know, and that, that just speaks also right back to their loyalty. You know, those guys love people well and they're very loyal to, you know, the people that love them well awesome yeah and this is obviously all a testament to how as a band evolves as they change so can management roles change and open up other doors and opportunities um as well yeah i mean in, in, in the end it, i mean i sorry not in the end in the beginning you know whenever you're starting out as a manager you're wearing a lot of hats mm-hmm. you're wearing all the hats pretty much um and so is the band the band's wearing a ton of hats too you know it's it's before you have an agent on board that first manager's helping book tours like you know and and helping create opportunity and um you know as you continue to bring people on you then are taking those hats off and you're learning to delegate more and more but yeah it's it's constantly adapting and learning This podcast is brought to you by Starstruck Entertainment. For over 30 years, Starstruck has developed and managed talent, including singers, songwriters, producers, and recording engineers. Their roster includes Blake Shelton, Maggie Rose, John King, Caroline Cole, Emily Ann Roberts, Kale Dodds, and duo Pryor and Lee. You can keep up to date with all their latest releases by following Starstruck on Instagram or visiting their website, starstruckentertainment.com. And so I kind of want to transition into a little bit more that you do now within Triple Eight Management. Um, we were talking about a little bit before we started recording um, how you uh, are now working with Dave Barnes as well, um, more specifically too on his podcast that he's released. Um, so he's got Dadville out with John McLaughlin, who's featured stars like Aloe Black, Ted Danson. Um, I mean, just now Nate Bargatze, which I listened to last week because I'm a huge fan of him. Um, and then they've also got, well, not they, but Dave's also got the five hot takes podcast as well. Um, so I want to hear your thoughts on how podcasting has kind of expanded the expanded, just what artists can do, especially during this time where we're all making do with this, not, I don't want to say lull, but without touring, what podcasting has provided, um, for these artists fans and kind of really showcasing what interests them beyond music. Yeah. I mean, look, this past year and a half during the pandemic, when there's been no shows, I mean, it's, it's obvious that podcasting was kind of the, the easy transition for a lot of artists. Um, it was an easy way for them to stay engaged with their, with their fan base uh, and continue to put content out that keeps that fan, ga- that fan base engaged with them, you know, because uh, you know, the worst thing an artist can do is just not do anything for right. a limited period of time because in today's society and, and uh, you know, mental um, capacity for most folks, it's, you know, it's that 15 second time frame. you know, like 
people, I feel like everyone's just got, you know, short attention spans. You know, if you look at like how people consume records now, it's all single based. Like there's yeah. not really any artists that are intentionally, there are some, but not as a whole, there's not a lot of artists that are, are intentionally building a record as a whole and putting a ton of thought into the sequencing and, and, you know, helping tell a story from track one to track 12. It's more so here's single one, here's single two, here's single three, you know, and we're going to waterfall those and throw those onto the record. And, and then that's the record, you know, so everything's single base, you know, playlistings, everything right now, right? Like, yeah, everyone wants the new music Fridays and they want the, the big, the big playlists that have millions of followers. And, you know, that's just a testament of the time, you know, people's attention spans are quick and you got to figure out how to stay relevant, stay on the top of mind with folks. And, you know, a natural transition for that was podcasting. And some people like to do it. Some people don't, um, you know, Dave, um, Dave's amazing. And he's, you know, he just has the personality that could host and be a good host and talk to people. And, um, you know, for him, that was, that was a, a pretty natural thing to do. Um, and, you know, specific to Dadville, you know, John McLaughlin's a neighbor of his and one of his best friends. And John also is a very funny guy and able to hold good conversations. So, you know, that made sense, right? So, um, you know, Dave and John partnered up with um, a, a popular podcaster named Annie Downs, Annie F. Downs, who has a, a, a podcast network that um, we ended up, they're the ones that, um, you know, essentially produce and uh, distribute the podcast and they help have helped get guests and bring guests on like, you know, the folks that you've mentioned and, you know, a ton of others. And, um, you know, so doing that, like that's been a, a lot of fun and has kept fans engaged. And then Dave uh, started originally doing on his Instagram and you can go back on his page and look at like the highlights, but he started doing the five hot takes on Instagram and was getting a lot of great interaction with fans and replies and, yo, this is awesome. Like, man, you need to do this more often, blah, blah, blah. And he ended up deciding, Oh, let's maybe try to do a podcast version of this. So, you know, we just finished up season one of the five hot takes podcast. We're coming, starting to plan season two of it, wanting to, you know, expand and get a bunch of, you know, more guests on that. But, you know, season one, we, we had, artists from like James Bay to Drew Holcomb to Corey Wong, who, you know, plays in Wolfpack and he's, you know, he's a freak of a guitarist to, um, you know, Ben Rector. So like we've had some pretty fun guests on there and um, it's been, it's been fun to hear them not necessarily talk about their music, yeah. but talk about music in general and what they love about certain songs, which like to me is such a fun thing to listen to because you know, if I, if I hear someone that I respect as a musician or as or an artist, you know, recommend another song, I'm usually going to check it out because I'm like, Oh, like they love it. So they love it, then I probably will too, you know, something like that. So that's been fun. And, and, um, you know, but you know, the, the tough thing is everyone seems to be flipped, you know, at least in the last year and a half, there's been a lot of new podcasts, you know, and, there's that which means there's a lot lot of of uh noise to break through yes to get new fans and to get new followers um so you know we've had to be intentional and 
and, and, you know, really try to come up with plans to figure out how to do that and how to expand outside of just the, you know, the safe circle of friends and safe circle of musicians that, you know, are, are based here in Nashville and, and try to just expand that audience. But podcasting as a whole, I think is, has been a big benefit during this pandemic for artists because it's created, um, you know, a, a space that they didn't have before necessarily or have time for, especially if it's a touring artist that's out on the road, you know, four or five, six months a year, you know, the last thing that they want to do when they get home is to hop, you know, sit and talk for two hours um, recorded, you know, and do stuff around that. So it, it worked out perfect. You know, the pandemic created that space and it was just kind of a natural flow and transition into it. Um, you know, once shows come back, I, I feel like we'll see, we'll see a lot of those artist-based podcasts not be posting as regularly as they were, um, just because fans are able to now go and engage live and in person. Um, but no, I think podcasts were a very, um, important part of the last two years during this pandemic because it's allowed fans to stay engaged and it's allowed the artists to be stay relevant. And I want to wrap up with a question for you in terms of your role in the business. We've talked a lot about how artists have transitioned um, through the last two years, but being in the music business, being a manager, what have been some things that have helped you adapt um, within your role um, from a mental health standpoint, from a goal standpoint, um, and even outside the pandemic, the, the music business is always changing. Mm-hmm. So, um, but given this past, these past two years for you, what have been some things that have kept you motivated or even when you're not motivated, a little bit kinder to yourself? In that yeah. I mean, look, I, mental health in general is, is such a important topic that, you know, I think it's starting to be brought up and talked about more often, but it's still not enough yet. Um, it's still to a lot of people, you know, taboo for whatever reason. I don't know why, but, um, you know, some people, when you mention like, oh yeah, I go to, you know, I see a therapist, uh, you know, regularly. They're like, really? Are you okay? I'm like, yeah, like I'm great. <laughs> like, <laughs> like yeah. and that's why, like, you know, like what Paul, my, you know, my boss and, and, you know, dear friend at AAA and mentor, he, one thing that he described, you know, years back to me, um, cause I started doing therapy and seeing the therapist regularly, you know, years ago. But when, when he told me, he was like, look, you know, when you drive a car, uh, you, you, you get your oil changed every three months, you know, or whatever. He's like, why do you do that? Like, well, it's to keep the, it's to keep the engine healthy. It's to, to, you know, it's to keep the engine running and to have it not break down and burn out. Yeah. Like, that's, that's what you're doing for your brain with therapy. He's like, therapy is just oil changes. Therapy is oil changes for your brain and your soul. And if you don't do that and you don't figure out a way to flush that oil out and fill it back up with fresh oil, your, your, your engine or your brain is going to break down. And I was like, man, that's a great analogy. Like, <laughs> it is. I've never even heard it 
put that way before. Yeah. So, you know, that's, I, I just, I'm, I'm such a fan and a champion for people just keeping their mental health in check. And, you know, for me, it's this past two years, it's been a lot of um, really relying on my inner circle and my core group of friends and family that, um, you know, that I know that I can rely on and I can call and, and, you know, if I've had a shitty day, I can call an event and I, and I know that it's like a safe place to vent, you know, and, and no one's going to judge me for that. Um, but you know, mental health in this industry, especially the last two years, it's been tough. It's been, I know it's been tough for a lot of folks and, you know, because when you look at, I mean, gosh, there's, there's been so many people in live music from the crew standpoint, from promoters, from venue staff that went from working five days a week to having, not having a job. And obviously there's a lot of, um, you know, mental stuff that comes with that. And, um, you know, the tough thing that, uh, you know, with this country and the healthcare system here is that mental health is also not prioritized from a, from an insurance standpoint. So, you know, it's, it might be easy for me to say, or for someone to hear me say like, Hey, get a therapist. Like it's great to have a therapist, but some people can't afford $135, $170 a session. Yeah. However much it may be and depending on who you see. Um, so like, you know, one of the things that, that, you know, we've continued to, to push out and remind folks and remind crew members about is, you know, there's a lot of really great nonprofits out there that help um, alleviate some of that financial stress and help connect some dots and, and set things up. One of them being, um, you know, Music Cares, which is a which is a Grammy Foundation nonprofit that does a lot of work within the music industry, um, specifically in helping artists and uh, crew or really anybody that works in the music industry that's affected, you can go on and you can apply. And I've got multiple friends of mine that during this pandemic have gotten 10 free therapy sessions paid for by music heirs, you know, and they're doing that across the board, you know, music, they just have, they've got a pretty healthy fund that they, um, they help, uh, they just help, they help people, you know, and, they help people get back on their feet or connect dots. They'll help with, with, um, they'll help with hospital bills. If there's, you know, a lot of these folks that tour are also not insured, you know, from a healthcare standpoint. So, you know, let's say you get sick, you know, let's say you got COVID and you had to go into the ER for a couple of days, like that's going to be a hefty bill. So there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of really, um, good programs out there that allow that music cares is one of them, but there's a handful of others um, that are strictly there to help people in this industry with their mental health and with, you know, any financial, you know, strains that they might be having. So, you know, anyone that's, that's listening to this, that, you know, might be on the fence or want to do therapy but, but, you know, are hesitant because of the cost. Like I'd, you know, I would really encourage you and champion you to, to check those sites out. I think, you know, maybe you can, I don't have it up on my screen right now in front of me, but, um, 
you know, maybe you can look it up and, and post it in the description or something of the podcast, but I think it's musicares.org is one of them. Um, there's one called Black, uh, Backline. Um, and there's a couple other. I can forward you. I'll forward you an email that I sent out to a lot of our crew members um, within the past couple months that has some links. But there are some some pretty great organizations out there that are there to help. And I would just encourage folks to reach out to those. Yeah, there's a, so if you go to grammy.com slash music and then, well, this is a little bit of a long link here, but if you just go to music or search that, it'll pull up the music COVID-19 relief. And it's got a lot of different resources there um, that they're offering. So, and then of course, testimonials, lots of other great stuff. So yeah, I'll definitely post in the, in the caption. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Ben, thank you so much for sharing your story, sharing your perspective and what you've done for artists so far in your career. And it's just been really cool to hear everything. <laughs> hey, thanks for having me on. I, I really appreciate it. And, and always good to catch up. We need to do it more often. All right. And hey, hopefully we'll see each other at a show soon. Hopefully. It's coming back, folks. It's coming back. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Young Entertainment Professionals Podcast. To get connected, visit yepnashville.com and follow Yep Nashville and Yep Los Angeles on social media. I'm your host, Libby Ulrich, and until next time, discover, cultivate, accelerate.